You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. This is Jean Ann McCullough. Walking through the pasture hours before sunup, crouching low to find the horses against the dark sky. All around her, hands roping their mounts. Blowing of horses, clicking of cinches, voices soothing in Spanish. Some of the ponies gave in to the rope, others bucked and kicked, not wanting to spend all day running in the sun and thorns. Many of the horses were nothing but scar tissue from wither to hoof. The brush had taken all the hair off. A never-ending creak of windmills, kneeling with the colonel to study the wet ground at the stock tanks, the night's fresh tracks. Cattle, deer, foxes, javelina, rabbits, paisano, hare, mice, raccoons, snakes, turkeys, bobcats. The appearance of a panther track brought her father and brothers, an old Mexican with his dogs. At some point, she did not remember when, the colonel began to put his hand over every panther track he saw, obliterating it completely. Don't tell anyone. The adult world, she knew, ran on secrets. The derision of her father and brothers when she said she wanted to see a wolf or bear. They are better in zoos, said her father. They are better gone forever. And what had she learned? She had lost half her family before their time. The land was hard on its sons, harder yet on the sons of other lands. Her grandmother had once proposed a bounty for each pair of Mexican ears. We should treat them the same as coyotes, she said. She thought of her brothers killed by the Germans, her uncle Glenn blown to bits in a trench. She tried to retire 12 years ago. She had been a child kneeling by the stock tank, and then her own children were middle-aged. She had not been perfect. She had wanted to patch things up. She had wanted to know her grandchildren. There had been a window for that, but oil was low, cheaper than water, they said, and the bids she got for her leases were a fraction of what they should have been. She knew it was the last chance to make things right with her family, but to sell at such a bottom, the thought made her physically ill. Then the Arabs hit New York. She began hiring drillers. Her children had their own lives. They did not need her, or so she told herself, and oil began to climb. To see a well come in where there had just been desert, to see flow after a good frack job from a hole everyone else had given up on, that was what she lived for. Something out of nothing, the act of creation. There would always be time for family. Philip Meyer is the author of American Rust. His new novel is The Sun. Thank you for joining me, Philip. Thanks, Rick. At its base, it seems this is a novel about civilization. You begin give us a quote from Gibbons at the beginning. He shows up again at the end. And in between, we see different kinds of civilization. And it's about different definitions of civilization. Sure. I mean, I think that we all grow up with a sense of America as either coming at it from the John Wayne or John Ford movie, you know, the, that sort of mythology. Or if we come at it from the sort of side that we learn in college, it's the idea that um, the, that the sort of vicious white settlers 
stole all the land from the Native Americans, which is absolutely true, and that the Native Americans were somehow more holy, somehow different. We don't actually necessarily think of them uh, always as fully formed people because we, we think of them almost as this, these sort of demigods who are much wiser than we are. Uh, the, the truth is that, you know, for the last 15,000 years that the people have lived in North America, you know, thousands of cultures have, have risen and fallen and been, been overthrown. And one thing that's pretty clear throughout history is that when, when cultures or societies or groups of people begin to gain power, uh, they also become acquisitive. And it, we certainly see this in our own European history, you know, moving to America and, and essentially taking over the entire continent. Um, but, but it was also true you know, th- throughout the history, both of this continent and, and every other one. I love the the way that this book is set up. You've created this family. Uh, talk about creating the McCullough family. This must have did they did you meet one and then let the others grow from them, or did they kind of spring up individually? So I, I think as artists, um, we make this effort to erase all signs uh, of our work in the finished product. You know, whether it's a novel or a painting or a film. And um, for me, this book is, is, is no different. The, uh, that's exactly how it worked. It, it did not spring fully formed uh, into my mind or, or, or onto my you know, word processor. Uh, originally, the book had 10, 12 characters. It was most, mostly set in the modern day and in the 20th century. And by the time I finished uh, writing the book, it had only three characters who were, you know, one guy lived for, in the 1830s up until the 1900s. Another guy lived in the mid-1900s, and, and the, the, the third character lived uh, through uh, most of the 20th and 21st century. I, I really like the, the way that you've created the McCulloughs, and there must have been a lot of research that you ended up doing for this. And I'd like you to talk about taking the kind of re- taking research and history and then rewriting it, telling it as story, because we're so immersed in the story that we don't quite realize that we get the hist- that we're getting kind of history. Thank you. Yeah, and hopefully you don't see that. Um, I, I, so I grew up in Baltimore, and uh, you know, I, I lived in New York. I went to college in New York. And when I, I moved down to Texas, I didn't know much about the state. Uh, I've lived there for about a, a decade now. But I ended up reading, as I realized this book was going to be set in Texas, of course I began to, I took classes on Texas history, and I also began to read. Um, over the five years it took me to, to write the book, I probably read about 350 books, and gradually a sort of pattern began to emerge from those things in terms of, A, seeing people in history as real human beings, which is something that, that I hadn't done. You know, I mean, we because the settlement of the West is so mythologized, we don't always see the the both you know our, depending on who's which side you come from whether you come from the European side or the Native American side we don't always always see those people as humans and um, the more I read I was reading only nonfiction I stopped reading all fiction about about the West or, or about the the U.S. What I realized is oh these people were just like us all of them on both sides and it was very important to me to portray them as such to, to almost take sort of modernist. Um, approach to, to writing about our creation myth, you know, I, I began to think, okay, well, what would, how would James Joyce have written about this? How would you know, Virginia Woolf have written about this? They would have written highly psychologically nuanced, complex characters that, that were very far from being mythological figures, let's say. 
when we read the book, what interested me when I first opened it up was the way you create this world for us. There's a lot of world building in this, I think, because mm. all these scenes are, at least for me, very foreign. So when we're immersed in the world of 1936 or 1836, um, it all seems uh, so strange. So I'd like you to talk about just creating that world from just the characters' perceptions. Absolutely. And um, so I think there, there's sort of two archetypes of writers. Uh, the one is the type of person who doesn't actually care if the facts are correct because, you know, they're writing a novel, they're making art. Um, they don't necessarily need for every detail in, in this world to be true. And I sort of wish I were that type of writer. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not. I'm sort of the polar uh, opposite, which is that unless I understand the, the physical details of the world, unless I understand how the characters are feeding themselves the clothes that they wear, where do they sleep, where does their food come from, you know, where does their money come from. I have a very difficult time feeling the confidence to, to write even, even a word. And so in the case of this book, for every decade and every sort of environment and ecosystem, there are a lot of scenes that take place among the Comanche Indians in the 1840s. Um, I actually had to teach myself what those worlds were, were like. So I went I slept and ate and uh, I taught myself to bow hunt um, in pretty much every area in Texas, the book, and in the Southwest, the book takes place. I became very sort of intimate with the land. I Every time I, I saw a plant I didn't recognize, I would take a picture, look it up. Um, I, I spent several weeks taking classes on animal tracking and, and, and how to, uh, you know, build a, a bow drill and, and uh, a hand drill, which are the, the ways that our ancestors, on you know, whether you're European or Native American, that, that this is the original way to make fire. I also spent about a, a month at, at, uh, at Blackwater, the, the, which is a the private military contractor, because the, most of the Plains tribes were fundamentally warrior cultures. And, uh, and if we're honest, the, the frontier, whether this is the frontier in 1650 when it's in Pennsylvania or New York, or whether we're talking... The frontier in 1850, when when it's about where I-35 is through Texas and up through the middle of the country, what was a combat zone, and um, the, the folks who were moving out there knew they were moving to a combat zone, and so there was a sort of you know uh, comfort with violence that you know has certainly persisted in America to this day. But but that is the origin of it, and I think um, so. So I went to Blackwater to absorb this warrior culture. How do people who whose job is to kill, you know, they make a living going to war, how do they process that? Um, how do they think about that? How technically does one survive in combat or win a gunfight and things like that? And so I think all these details made their way into the book because as soon as I could see the land clearly and I could see what it felt like to spend your day tanning deer hides, um, which I tanned several of, or tanning buffalo hides, that allowed me to write with the sort of confidence that I, that I needed to have because I saw the land very clearly. I knew what you felt, what it felt like at the end of the day uh, after doing this type of labor. And in a very rough sense, I interviewed so many people who'd spent so much time in combat that I understood, at least to some degree, uh, their mindset enough to, to get to capture it in the book. I, I have to ask you, what's a buffalo wolf? <laughs> That's just a, so the buffalo wolf is just a larger species of, um, of wolf. It might be a subspecies, but... There were smaller wolves that, uh, sort of like the gray wolves, that still exist in the U.S. But the buffalo wolves 
again, whether this is just a subspecies that, that adapted to be larger, they lived on the plains. So they, they were basically wiped out. I can when you when you brought that little detail in, I could just imagine it. And those are the kind of details that evoke a whole world. Now I have to ask: when you're out there sleeping in the rough and in your sleeping <laughs> peg in Texas, do you have your word processor with you, or are you taking notes, or is it just all uh, intake? Mm, no, of, of course I, I don't have a word processor. Uh, you know, thankfully we all, you know these iPhones are miraculous. So for taking pictures, I, I would take them on my, my phone. And then I, I always have notebooks and pens that I'm, that I'm, uh, you know, writing down things. in, of course, so yeah, you, you have to be, I mean, you, cause you're not going to remember everything. Also, I think too, that the, the process of writing itself, presenting pen to paper and writing words, there's a certain, uh, alchemy in that, that, uh, informs your mind in a way that nothing else can. It, it absolutely does. I mean, all of my important work, comes from the, my subconscious. I mean, I, I grew up reading a lot and sort of thinking myself as an intellectual, at least on, in some way. I, th- I think like most people who uh, are probably listening to this program did. And what I realized is that that part of the mind, for me anyway, is usually about a year behind um, wherever my subconscious is. That I sort of, I can verbalize things and intellectualize them much later than I can feel or sense them. And Coming to that realization as an artist is quite crucial because you, you just learn to trust your instincts. I learned that when I go into writing mode, which which is as you said, begun when you know you put pen to paper, where you turn on your computer. Um, I, I I actually go into another brave wave, brainwave state. It's it's a it's the same as when you know an athlete is in the zone. You lose awareness of your body, you move completely instinctively, and it's a state of complete openness. Um, to the world, though, though when you're writing, you know, it's a state of complete openness to the to your interior. And, um, you know, it's almost like uh, meditation, I guess. I, I wanted to talk about uh, creating the kind of layers of time in this in this novel, mm-hmm. uh, because it's so, so nice to see the way they reflect one another. Characters in one time are reflected in another. And we see a lot of one character in one time will have perceptions of another who's also talking in the previous time. So that all those reflections uh, make the novel a really rewarding reading experience. So those, I, I would like to pretend that, again, I'm, I'm a, a genius, and those things just sprung out of the pen fully formed. But, but uh, if I'm honest, what, what any novel is is a sort of accretion of detail, so the the details as you work. If you yourself are immersed in in the in the work, and I I try to remain um, all all I do is write, and I try to remain very close to the work, uh, just even temporally. I, I if I'm writing a novel, I make a very strong effort to never be away from it for more than twelve hours. So I don't let any twelve hour period pass in which I'm not sitting there and maybe writing for at least at least one hour. And what this does is it turns your subconscious onto the work and it sort of, I think, con- convinces some part of your, your, your mind that the most important thing to be dealing with now is this novel you're writing. And so gradually, when, I'm, if I'm dry, when I become fully immersed in the book, uh, in the writing of it, details will come to me when I'm walking, when I'm driving, when I'm standing at the grocery line. I'm careful to write those down and then put them in their, their proper place. And, and that, if, if there is that sort of, that weaving of these narratives together, and the constant reflection of, of one from one narrative back to another and then on to the third, 
it, it's because of that accre- sort of accretion of detail. It's not that that's not necessarily how it sprang from from my pen. Uh, I I want to talk a little bit about the characters. We first meet uh, Eli McCullough, and he's he's thirteen years old. It's uh, 1836. He's living in the middle of nowhere, essentially, in Texas. Yeah. Is this the first image that came to your mind in the no, novel? It, so it actually wasn't. Um, so Eli is certainly one of the the charismatic characters in the book. I mean, he he uh, he lives on the frontier. He's captured by these Comanche uh, uh, Indians, and he lives with them for several years. He was actually the last character to come to me. The book originally was written, set mostly in the 20th century, there about 10 characters who sort of reflect on what it meant to be descended from these famous frontiersmen and the sort of moral ramifications of this and the philosophical ramifications of where they'd caught in the land, had they stolen the land, had everyone else before them just stolen the land and, and they were the, the sort of most recent people to forcibly take it over. What it actually sounded like, this book took five years to write, and so that was what it, the book was about for the first about two years, I would say. It just sounded like if, if you took the most annoying graduate student in, in history and sort of stuck them in a room with the most annoying graduate student in uh, lit criticism and asked them to write a book, that's what it would sound like. It was just, it was basically the characters saying really obnoxious stuff that was straight from from my brain and come out of their mouths. And... At this point, I realized that if I was going to sort of reflect on the history of the frontier and, and on the American creation mythology, I actually had to engage in some myth-making alongside that. And so I had to be writing in this time period in, in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And I needed this character who, who the other people had been talking about, but I needed his actual voice. And that was when I realized the book was going to take much, much longer to write than I thought it was going to. You've uh, spoken uh, quite a bit about the American creation myth, and I wanted to understand how much your sense of what that is changed in the in the course of writing this book. Oh, sure. It, it changed enormously. I think, again, I'm guessing like many of the readers, I grew up watching cowboy movies. You grew up playing cowboys and Indians, um, and then you get to college, let's say, and you learn... A sort of counter mythology. So you, you grew up with a sense that white people, but if we're being you know accurate, modern Europeans landed here, and um, we bravely moved out onto this unclaimed land, and we we took the land with you know the axe and and the plow and and the horse, and we raised stock, and through the sort of dint of hard work, we were able to reinvent ourselves and, and make a new name for ourselves. And you know this is fundamental to the idea of the American dream is this idea of, of open land where you can through hard work you can become comfortable or wealthy or, or, or sort of you can actually reinvent yourself. And there's no sense in that in that creation myth and that that version of it. There's no sense that we took every inch of the land from other people, which of course we did. Um, you know, North America was at its carrying capacity of human beings when when white folks landed here, and. Um, Every inch of the land was claimed, and we took every inch by force or, or by coercion. The counter-mythology to that, which most of us pick up in college, because if you're in Berkeley, you might pick it up at age five or something, but um, is that is sort of what we were talking about before, which, which is the way the Native Americans are not almost necessarily seen as people, but they're seen more as these mythological, almost you know, sort of like demigod-like figures who 
are holier, are closer to the earth, are wiser, are more spiritual. And it's actually, there's almost, you know, this idea of the wise Negro trope, which still exists in, in say, you know, TV and film today. Um, that is almost the way we think of Native Americans. It sort of, it sort of takes their humanity away. It takes their personhood uh, away. And as the more I researched the book, the more I realized, oh, North America, you know, there have been thousands of cultures here rising up and being overthrown you know, long before uh, white folks got here, this sort of uh, the land being uh, taken by one group and taken again and taken again and taken again. This is just the history of people, but you know, all over the, the the world, basically. So, as I as I sort of came to this understanding, it's not like the, the, these two competing myths. The, the truth is not in the middle. The truth is actually something else entirely. The truth is, people on all continents at all periods in time basically act very similarly and if there's anything i was trying to do with this book it was to get that point across to kind of contextualize um our our, our history civilization as gimme and that exactly um and uh, and uh, then that unfortunately that, that is what it is you know when people get power when societies get power they become acquisitive and they they tend to to to, to, to go after and take the things they want one of the things I think that we do, that you do incredibly well in this, and it seems it's a very difficult thing, is to give us scenes of exciting violence. And you write them in a way that makes them a pleasure to read, very engaging. You're frank about the violence, but it's not pornographic and about the violence in the way that this can sometimes happen. Mm. Uh, and I, I wanted to talk about how... Much it has to do, I think, with the sparseness of your prose. Hmm. I'd like you to talk about crafting the prose to create these scenes of violence. Sure, I and I wanted what I because this was a violent time uh, in our history. I mean, the entire frontier was basically a, a combat zone, and um, and so violence is something that everyone was comfortable with back then. The idea of of, of you know that you were going to die possibly violently was was quite uh, a well-accepted idea. And what, what I did not want to do is do what I think someone like Quentin Tarantino does, is to sort of make it pornographic, um, make it very pretty. Um, I, I worked as an EMT, and I, and I worked as an orderly in a trauma center for a number of years. And so I've actually seen quite, you know, a number of people die uh, from gunshot wounds and stabbings and car accidents and also, and also from normal, you know, heart attacks and things like that. And when I thought back to my reactions upon seeing these things, um, there was a kind of neutrality to it. You know, when you see someone die violently or sort of bloodily, it doesn't look like a Quentin Tarantino movie. It looks strangely like a part of normal life. It, it makes an impression on you, but it doesn't look any more or less beautiful than, than you know, sort of looking at someone sitting at the, at the coffee shop. It, it just, it simply looks like life. And... That's what I tried to get into the book. Um, I was very nervous about making these sort of violent scenes too pretty or too sort of like over dramatic. I wanted to be somewhat neutral about them, but I also wanted there to be a sense of loss. You know, when a person dies in a war movie, you don't usually feel it. I mean, it's almost, you know, it's, the, it's like a video game death. They fall over and they disappear. I wanted every person who is 
dies in this book, to, to, I wanted the reader to sense that loss, that, that this is an actual person. And I think that gets, that gets lost in a lot of historical fiction and westerns and, and, and most movies, too. Well, I, I also think, too, one thing you do in these scenes very well, and it struck me only afterwards when I thought about it a little bit, how difficult it must be to set a very carefully scripted scene of action in a what is essentially to us a vanished historical setting. Yeah, and I think that, if I'm honest, that really is just getting that comfort with the, the physical environment you're writing about and understanding how the people would think, speak, what their day-to-day life would be, and, and, and actually seeing the land. For me, sleeping in the land, walking the land was very, very important. Because until you can see the physical world, I, don't, I think it's very difficult to write characters uh, who are moving about in it. And I, I really liked, too, the sense of chaos that you brought to the rivalry factions all the way through this. There are people at war with one another, whether they're shooting one another, whether they're trying to cut one another out of business, government. It's this kind of chaotic feel, and and I think that's uh, difficult to achieve. Thank you. Um, And again, I think history tends to smooth and simplify all of these narratives, right? I mean, history, we try to make it good against evil, us against them, uh, faction A against faction B, when in fact, history is always, you know, there there are a hundred competing factions, but because it's too complicated to tell the story that way, what makes it into the books is just a very simplified uh, version. The, the, in fact, the version that, that, that didn't uh, exist in, in, in history. So, uh, yeah, if anything, this is just me trying to be very, very accurate um, to what I found in, in the historical record. Well, you talked about story, and at one point, uh, uh, Joanne McCullough has somebody going through her papers, and the guy who's going through her papers says, you can make this any story you want. And she replies, pick the best one. And he says, that would be lying. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So, yeah, Jean Anne McCullough's hired a historian to go through the family papers, as many of these wealthy Texas families do today. You know, they, they want someone to write the history of their family. And... This guy, this historian she's hired, is quite aware uh, of the fact that you can make any story you want out of history. You can portray whichever side you want as being uh, the good guys or, or the bad guys. Um, and it, it, it is a question of context, and it is a question of sort of artificially deciding that um, one side's on the side of, of rightness and the, the, other, the other people are, are, are wrong or somehow evil. Well, in this book, nobody's on... Any side of rightness or evil, they're all kind of on their own sides. And you do a great job of having us sympathetic to two sides that are uh, in competition with one another. I think that's really, that's an interesting effect for me to experience as a reader. That that was crucial for me to do. Um, I, I think you, there are very few instances of, of, of pure good and pure evil in the world. I mean, we can, we can think of, you know, Adolf Hitler's an easy one, but, but, but most historical events and most wars, you know, they're fought by people who are almost the same, you know, uh, people are just people. And so it was crucial to me when, whether we're portraying, you know, the, the Comanches versus the settlers or uh, one group of settlers versus another, that my, my job was to make you understand both sides and to sympathize very heavily and equally with both sides 
And I wanted to eliminate that sense of, of right and, and wrong from, from the book in terms of we know that these guys are the good guys and these guys are the bad guys. Because, because in terms of their historical behavior, you know, there, there was a lot of violence in, back in the, the days of, of the frontier, but it was very, very evenly distributed. I mean, both sides committed the same number of atrocities. Both sides were just as loving and supportive to their families. And, um, th- you know, this is certainly this is one of my main goals in, in writing the book. We talked a little bit about Eli McCullough, who's a super charismatic, you know, manly character through whether he's 13 or 100. He still has this kind of magnetism. And, yeah. But you have these other really great characters, too. And one guy I just really loved was Peter. And what I liked about Peter is that he's so conflicted. He's somewhat mm. ineffectual. Yeah. But you you give us a, a sense of the core of this man that makes him very interesting. So Peter's the moral voice of the book, and um, of all the people in this family, he's the one who ha- does not have a sort of flexible morality. He has a very strong sense of right and wrong. He feels a very strong sense of guilt for the way his family has acquired uh, the massive land holdings they have. Um, he's very aware that the land's been taken by force, and he's very critical of his father, Eli McCullough, who has this moral flexibility that, you know, a lot of our, the people who founded this country did. Uh, if, if he wanted the land, he simply took it. If, um, if, if you wanted to get money, you simply took it. And this, I think also is the, in some sense, we know about this, you know, when we look back at the sort of robber baron era, we know that, uh, these people got their fortunes, um, sort of illegally or immorally, but what I was trying to ask the question of is in this book is, is, is what does it mean, you know, is it possible that, that the whole country was, was gotten this way? And Peter is the, is the single character who, he is a bit ineffectual uh, because I was, I was a bit nervous about making any character sort of like a James Bond character in which they're both highly moral and, you know, highly um, physically uh, you know, adept. Um, I, I wanted to make it, you know, more like real life in which... The people who are the, the the people who are the best at getting what they want are almost certainly not the most moral, and the people who are the most moral are probably not good at getting what they want. And, and uh, on the people who are good at getting what they want, Jean Ann McCullough is such a great character. <laughs> I really liked being with her. She's so much fun. Thanks. So so she's the great granddaughter of uh, Eli McCullough, and she's the only daughter. Uh, her she doesn't grow up with a mother figure. Her father's a, a, a dilettante cattleman who's sort of running the family fortune into the ground. And her, her brothers are sort of equally, uh, you know, they're very masculine guys, but they're, they're basically uh, delusional and, and they don't care about anything but riding horses and, and chasing women. And she's the one who, who basically saves the family. She's the one who, who saves the fortune, saves their land, tries to restore the land back to the way it was in terms of removing the brush and getting the, the ecosystem back to into some kind of balance. And on another way, she's, she's the one who's most like uh, this guy, Eli, in the sense that her, her morality is also a bit flexible. So she's very good at getting what she wants, but she doesn't necessarily think of the cost of that. 
And, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about creating the different voices for Eli and Peter and, and Jean. I, I think you do a, a really nice job of differentiating them. We feel oh, they're, they're very different, and the way that you've paced the interleaving is also very effective. As a writer, did you write primarily in one and then in another, or did you interleave your writing you, as well? I think you have to. I, I, so um, the, the, the book alternates uh, points of view, sort of uh, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, throughout the book with these three different characters. And I think that you initially have to write the entire book and get a sense of the, this narrative structure and get a rough sense of what's going to happen to the characters. You then have to move away from that and write only in one character's voice from start to finish then begin the book sort of again and write only the next character's voice start to finish and then you have to do that a third time and so on and so on depending on how many characters you're writing otherwise they do bleed together you know the voices bleed together the, the modes of thought bleed together in this case because they're very different historical time periods you know even the their vocabulary bleeds together one of the things i think that struck me about this book was the way you do different emotional arcs. There's the emotional arcs for the characters, mm -hmm. and then there are emotional arcs for the reader within the story. And I'd like you to talk about uh, crafting those so that they weave together. Did that just happen, or no. was that planned? Really, no nothing just happens. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, nothing just happens, but I'm not sure how much it's planned either. At a certain point, you, you become aware of the structure you're going to use and what the capabilities of that structure are. Um, and if you find, like as I was saying before about the book, two, two and a half years into the writing of it, I realized that the structure I devised was not going to carry the message I wanted it to carry. So hopefully what you're doing with the sort of way you tell the story, not, 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 not the story itself, not, not the characters themselves, but the way in which you order events and the way in which you, you put events next to one another, you were getting this, this additional benefit of you're, you're showing by contrast and comparison the reader something that, that the characters themselves cannot see. So th that, by the end, was certainly intentional. None of it's accidental, but I had not had it planned uh, like that from the beginning at, at all. Did you find yourself using spreadsheets or diagrams, or was this all just a, a text? I, you, I, I think you can't. Um, I think that if you're—I certainly have large pieces of white paper that I would scribble notes on, but um, it, that, it doesn't actually work so well that way. You have to be able to keep this all in your head at the same time. Your subconscious has to be able to wrap, wrap itself around the entire book, Um so sure, I had big pieces of white paper, but by the time the book actually began to work, I tore them all down and threw them away. You know, one of the things I loved about the segments with Peter, um, here's our sections where the rivalries and factions are so interesting. And you bring in, this is where we meet first meet the Garcias. Mm. And I, I, they prove to be uh, of significant, more significant than we <laughs> suspect they're going to be. So I'd like you to talk about creating them and encountering them as a writer. And then once you had encountered them, where they started to sift in. Sure. So Texas was settled by the Spanish. And Texas, um, in fact, was a, it was a Spanish state and then it was a Mexican state up until 1836 
it, it then becomes an independent country and then becomes part of the U.S. about 10 years later. The result of this is that for the first two or 300 years of modern Europeans were there, Texas was fundamentally a Spanish place. Uh, you know, Texas being held by Anglos is pretty recent historically. And in fact, the Spanish at first, because they were a pretty highly advanced civilization, the Spanish who lived in Texas were wealthy. They'd gone to university. Uh, they probably spoke four or five languages. They were sophisticated Europeans. The Americans who were coming in were uneducated, fairly violent. Many of them were on the run, and this is actually quite serious. Uh, many of the people who went to Texas went there because they were going to be hung in their native states. You know, um, Some of them had, had, had nothing to... Uh, they, some of them had went there to make their fortunes, and, and many many of the early Texans were there because you know, it was either that or be hung in Tennessee or, or Kentucky or wherever they had, wherever they were from. Our own Australia. No, it, it, well, it actually is. I mean, that's this, this is you know this is this is actually even Texans joke about this that um, oh yeah you know my daddy was going to get hung in you know state X Y Z and he came to Texas. Uh, more like great 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 granddaddy, I guess. So. Uh, there was this cultural clash, and we now think of this, the situations reversed. If, you, if if we think of the, the the folks who are the outsiders in Texas now, who are struggling coming across the border as uh, being uh, from Mexico, uh, the reverse was certainly true up until the 1850s. The sort of sophisticated landholders were Spanish, recently Mexican, and the folks who were the sort of hordes of people who wanted, you know, who wanted to make a better life for themselves were, were Anglo. Um, and so by the late 1800s, the Anglos have very aggressively taken the land of a lot of these Spanish folks. Um, in, in one case, every deed that was collected to, when, when, when uh, Texas became part of the U.S., they went to all the old Spanish families and said, give us, give, give us your deeds and we'll send them to the capital and record them so you can keep your land. Well, all those deeds were put on one ship, which sunk. And so many of these families immediately had no record of, and these were handwritten deeds that were from, given to them by the king of Spain, you know, so that they, they had no record of owning the land anymore. And it was quite common also for, say, uh, someone to pay off a sheriff who then would talk to the judge and they would lose um, all the, the receipts that said that this person, you know, from a Spanish or Mexican family had paid their taxes. And so they'd get a knock on the door saying, oh, you haven't paid your taxes for seven years. And the, the family member would say, well, we certainly have. But there was no record of it because that had been deleted at, at, at the state house or in the local courthouse. And I show this all in the book. And this is like very well documented in, in history. So the Garcias are one of these old families who had, you know, they're this, we meet them in the 1900s, the 1915. Their ancestors have lived on the land since 1750, long before Anglos showed up. And they're sort of desperately holding on to it. And, and many of the Mexican families by then have either intermarried with Anglos to preserve their land or they, they've, they've given it up altogether and gone back to, to Mexico because, or, or even to Spain because they, you know, they didn't want to be killed. So the Garcias early on are massacred by the McCullas and we, we see... Through, through as the story develops, just how a lot of land changed hands in, in South Texas in, in the 1900s, which which was still by, you know, we think of it as being, you know, this is American 1915. There was still an awful lot of massive land theft going on then. 
you one of the things that you talk about too is they'll just send lawyers to sue people. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know, the 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 the, the folks who moved to the frontier. I mean, again, they all knew they were moving into a combat zone. They generally moved there because they had no other choice. You know, it's a bit like folks. You know, if you don't have much money, you may move, you move to a poorer area which has more crime, but you can buy a nicer house and you sort of you know homestead there, and hopefully the neighborhood improves. This is what people were doing back then, but it was much more violent because all these the Native American bands and tribes were knew they were at war for their existence. So what would happen is as the frontier was settled, you'd have a second class of people come in who were wealthier and more powerful who would then often challenge the deeds of the first wave of settlers and force them back out again, out to the edge again of the frontier, past the frontier. And this was this is like very well documented and very common in Texas. Gunpoint gentrification. Uh, that, that is what it is. I mean, and, and, and it, yeah, so at first it's gunpoint um, taking the land from the Native Americans. And then it's sort of, uh, you know, lawyer point gentrification <laughs> in which the wealthier folks would take it from the poorer folks and drive them back out to the frontier again. You know, it, it interest, interested me that Eli goes through a series of baptisms. Mm. And, and I, I thought that was really well handled and very interesting. And Thank you. Transformative. I, I'd like you to talk about putting those sections in. Sure. Uh, so Eli is, uh, t- his family's been driven out first to one level of the frontier, their land is, is taken by lawyers. They they move out again past the line of settlement and um, into well into Comanche hunting grounds and the, the family's attacked by Comanches and Eli is taken as, as a captive and he's sort of reborn as a Comanche. He's a capable young man and the Comanches accept him. Sort of the captives were a lower class of citizen, but they could be accepted as full members of the tribe. Uh, this is this is very common in Texas. It's actually very common across the entire history of the frontier. Again, whether we're talking Pennsylvania or New Hampshire, um, it was fairly common for uh, some Native American tribes to take captives from other Native American tribes and 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 raise the children as their own. And uh, when Anglo's and uh, Spanish folks moved in, they you know they were not treated any differently. So these captivity stories are very common in American history. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of documented cases of them. And so Eli goes through a fairly standard transformation, which is that he's raised by his blood family. He sees them killed. He's taken uh, by, by, by the Comanches. He then adapts to life in the tribe. They welcome him into the tribe, and he becomes a full-blooded Comanche. And this is, again, based on... You know, there at least for the Comanches uh, in Texas, there are dozens and dozens of of very well researched and, and recorded cases of this, and I wanted to capture that psychology because it seems so foreign to us now. But back then, there was a much more fluid sense of what side you're fighting on. You know, this year versus next year versus the year after. I think we can wrap our heads around maybe the Civil War, in which people who were, you know, there, there were people who actually might have been from the same family who fought on opposite sides, but that idea was much more common back then in general than we think of it uh, uh, being today. Uh, one of the things, I, I really enjoyed all the details of uh, Comanche, Comanche culture. Yeah. And I'd like you to talk about, did you uh, create bows and arrows the way they did and, and create rope yourself? Sure. Yeah. So I, I, made, I learned how to make cordage from plant fiber, like, uh, you know, well, also from you know, things like horsehair, but from uh, agave fiber. That was a pretty common one uh, in Texas. I never got good at it, 
with almost all these uh, details of life on the frontier or beyond the frontier, I learned most of these skills myself, but I also learned just how hard it actually was. So uh, I practiced for about a week to get a fire with a bow drill, which is three sticks that you rub together and with enough friction to get a small coal that you use to start a fire. After one week of intense practice, I got a fire once. Uh, and, and, it was, and it was dry. And the conditions were perfect. Um, and with a hand drill, which is what most of, of our ancestors throughout, throughout history have used um, to make fires, I never got a fire with a hand drill ever. I mean, I, my hands got bloody from rubbing, from spinning this piece of wood against this other piece of wood, but I, I never once generated enough heat to, to get a coal. I, I, I also tanned hides, which is like really labor-intensive, back-breaking work. Um, you know, your arms, your shoulders are sore after after even just tanning one hide. I tanned several of them. And this was something that, uh, this was the women's job among most of the Plains Indians. They, you know, the women had much harder lives than the men speaking generally they did all the cooking they gathered fire uh, or firewood they gathered water and they had to make all of the clothes and maintain the camp so they the men if they weren't at war generally got to lie around and smoke and gamble um, the women worked from the time they woke up to the time they went to sleep i mean it was it was a back-breaking existence and the the, the result of this is the plains Indian tribes had much lower fertility rates than lots of other groups did. And that's one of the reasons, especially for the Comanches, that it was actually necessary for them to take captives because the average Comanche woman would, would have about, you know, sort of one and a half kids on average that would survive. So they actually depended on captives to keep their, their numbers up because, you know, their lives were, the, the lives of women back then was very, very hard. And this goes uh, a long way to explain why they were loath to lose, risk the lives of their warriors when in battle, just to kill more people. Absolutely. And so you see this again and again and again with um, all these the Plains Indian tribes, which is that white generals, you know, American generals are very happy to sacrifice, you know, 100 guys to take a hill or, or you know, to sacrifice 50 guys to get this small piece of ground or 1,000 guys. The Native Americans were much more protective of their own. They were ve- they they were very well. They were certainly very very brave in combat. You know, as a whole, they were very reluctant to sacrifice to to lose or even have anyone wounded uh, when it wasn't necessary. Now to skip the needle forward, talk a little <laughs> bit about wildcatter culture, which is important to Gene's story. Critical. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, this is something that ties in again so much to this this American idea that, you know, the, the idea of the American dream that you can reinvent yourself through hard work and skill and some degree of luck. But so wildcatters are people who explore for oil, but are not, um, working for any large oil company and wildcatters throughout the 20th century or have basically discovered about 99% of the oil that, that we used in the 20th century. And it's very high risk, very low reward, but when it pays off, it's like winning the lottery. So these people tend to be hard living, hard drinking. One day they're worth $2 million. This is back when a million dollars really was a million dollars. The next day they're bankrupt. And um, it's something that has defined Texas culture in the 20th century. And, and again, it ties in so well to this, this, this American idea that, okay, well, if you keep working, things are going to get better. 
And, and what interests me, too, about this book is it's a beautiful book. It's fabulous to read. But two of the main characters would no more read this book than <laughs> would. In fact, we find out exactly what Eli would do with the book. No, sure, exactly. Um, and I, I think it's so important when you're writing to write people honestly. It's so important to not put your own voice into a character's mouth to not put your own you know hobbies or you know preferences in life into these characters mouths um it takes much longer but you know it's like uh, eudora welty said something that you have to inhabit a character's skin whether they're a saint or, or a mass murderer and, and that is what you have to do so you have to really expunge yourself completely fr- from these people well, I think what's interesting me to me about that statement is that both Eli and Gene are somewhat both saints and mass murderers. They are. No, absolutely. <laughs> and I think that's what's interesting that you capture the potential for a, a human being to to have both parts simultaneously contradictory. I hope so. I mean, I think so. Is this Fitzgerald statement, um, which is that the definition of intelligence is to be able to hold two contradictory ideas in your head at the same time. And I think this is what, you know, this is what people are. And this is what many powerful people in history are. They're, I think they're very rarely purely moral people, even though we want to believe they are because it simplifies our lives when we think of them that way. You know, whether we're talking about George Washington or someone else, it makes our lives easier to put that person in a box and to sort of fit their lives to a narrative of our own invention. I've been speaking with Philip Meyer. His new novel is The Sun. Thank you for joining me, Philip. Thanks, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.